Thanks, guys. It was great, great worship this morning. We have, a, we have a wonderful worship team, man. I'm so thankful for them. Okay, we are back in Genesis again. Genesis chapter 41, if you want to turn there with me. Genesis chapter 41. It's a really fun uh, little blog that has been written by a mom. It's called The Honest Toddler. The mom wrote it, but she wrote it as if through the eyes of a toddler. And uh, a while back, she wrote uh, a post where she, she basically had a, a translation chart when your toddler says, I'm sorry, he really means this, okay? When I say I'm sorry, I mean, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry you have no sense of humor. When I say I'm sorry, I really mean, I'm sorry I didn't run faster. I'm sorry I did that in front of you. I'm sorry that I didn't hit him hard enough to make him afraid to tattle. When I say I'm sorry, I really mean I'm sorry I didn't eat the evidence. When kids are at the park and they say they're sorry, when I'm sorry, I say I'm sorry, I really mean I'm sorry you were in my way. And I love this one. I'm sorry your face angers me. (laughs) I'm sorry you thought sharing was for more than 30 seconds. Give it back. I'm sorry your snack looked delicious and your reflexes are slow. That's what a toddler means when a toddler says, I'm sorry. Now, around our house, we we try to encourage our kids not to say, I'm sorry. Don't say, I'm sorry. Say instead, I was wrong. Please forgive me. I don't want to hear, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Forgiveness is a, a complicated thing. Forgiveness is a hard thing. It's hard for toddlers to learn, isn't it? It's hard for us to learn. To, to seek forgiveness and to grant forgiveness. Certainly the, the most beautiful story of forgiveness in the Bible, really the central story of the Bible, is the cross of Jesus Christ where he hung on the cross and he looked down and he said, Father, forgive them. Uh, but next to the cross of Christ, the most beautiful story is that of Joseph forgiving his brothers. This morning we're actually going to finish our study of Genesis. The next few weeks we'll talk about how the promises of Genesis worked out in the life of Christ, how they were fulfilled in the life of Christ. This morning we're going to conclude our study of Genesis. We started all the way back in late August, September. And what a great way for God to finish this book for us with the story of Joseph and his forgiveness of his brothers. It's it's really actually quite a long narrative. Genesis uh, 42 through 50, because the story of Joseph starts when he's 17. It ends about when he's 56, so it's 40 years. I want to summarize that story for you. And uh, then I want to draw out a few lessons about forgiveness. You recall that Joseph was betrayed at age 17. His brothers threw him in the pit and ultimately sold him into slavery, into to some, some traveling Midianites. Brought him down to Egypt. They put him up on the auction block in Egypt and he was sold to Potiphar. Joseph was in the pit. Rescued from the pit only to be delivered to slavery. But he excelled as a slave in Potiphar's house. He was an amazing slave. He was so faithful, so loyal, so skilled that Potiphar put him in charge of more and more and more in his house. Ultimately, he was over the entire house and everything that Potiphar owned out in the fields. And Potiphar was an exceptionally powerful and wealthy man, but he trusted Joseph with everything. All he concerned himself with was what he ate. Potiphar had a wife who thought Joseph was quite attractive. And she went after Joseph day after day after day after day. And day after day, Joseph said no. He said no to her. He said no to his own flesh. 
He didn't give in. He acknowledged that even though he was far from his family and no one knew, God knew. And he wanted to honor God more than anything else. And God was shaping him. God was molding him so that he could ultimately become the deliverer of his family. But first, he had to say no to flesh. He had to overcome and overpower his own appetites. And he did. But the result was, once again, he was betrayed. Potiphar's wife betrayed him. She said one day, that slave... Potiphar, that you purchased and you brought into our house. He tried to attack me. See, here's his robe here. Potiphar's enraged. He throws Joseph into prison. I suspect that he's enraged at a bunch of things, not just Joseph. I suspect that he probably knew his wife. Regardless, he threw Joseph into prison. Joseph is back in the pit. But he doesn't give in to despair and discouragement. Instead, he sees even in prison, he has an opportunity to serve. And so, once again, he uses his gifts faithfully. And he becomes the best prisoner possible. In fact, although he's a prisoner, he's the one overseeing the entire prison himself. And he cares for each of the other prisoners. So much so that when two of Pharaoh's courtyard come into the prison, he notices that these two men at one point are troubled. It's like, well, of course, everybody's troubled. Everybody's depressed and in despair. They're in prison after all. And these are not nice, clean prisons. There are no TVs and no recreation areas. It's terrible, terrible conditions. But Joseph notices that these two men in particular are really despondent. And he asks them, what's going on? Why are you in despair? So we've, we've had these troubling dreams and we don't know what they mean, but they, they're bothering us night after night. And Joseph says, you know, God is the one who gives dreams. So God knows what your dreams mean. Tell me. We'll see if God gives an answer. And sure enough, they told Joseph the dreams. The baker and a cupbearer. Joseph said, this is what it means. Baker, you're not going to get out of here alive. But cupbearer, you will be restored to your position of authority at the right hand of Pharaoh. And when that happens, when... God fulfills what he has revealed to you. Would you remember me? Speak kindly. Speak a good word for me. Sure enough, it happened just as Joseph had predicted. The baker was killed. The cupbearer was restored. And the cupbearer betrayed Joseph again. He was forgotten. Apparently for many years. Spent many years in prison. About the time Joseph was 30, Pharaoh had dreams. These dreams troubled him greatly, and no one in the land, not the, not the smartest men, not his astrologers and astronomers and scientists, they couldn't interpret what it meant. And then the cupbearer spoke up and he said, you know, I hate to bring this up again, but, but you remember when you put me in prison because I did that? There was a young man there who's no longer a young man, he's, he's 30, but he interpreted my dream. He said that I would be restored here and the baker would lose his life. And it happened just as he said. Maybe he can tell you what these dreams mean. So sure enough, they clean Joseph up. He can't come looking like a prisoner into Pharaoh's court. They clean him up, bring him to Pharaoh. Pharaoh relates the dream and Joseph said, you know, dreams belong to God. He gives them and he can tell you what it means. And this is what it means. Both of your dreams mean the same thing. And it was given to you twice because it, God's telling you it's going to happen. Certainly, it's confirmed. And this is what's going to happen. There are going to be seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt. Incredible abundance, like you've never seen before. But then after those seven years, there'll be seven years of famine. It's going to be terrible. You've never seen anything like it. And and the Egyptians will starve and die, and your nation will be gone, unless you appoint someone who's wise. And during those seven years of plenty, set aside grain. 
Tax the people such that when the years of famine come, you can feed them and they will not starve, they will not die, and your nation will not disappear. That's what you need to do, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh looks at Joseph and he says, you're the man, okay? There, there's nobody else who could have told me that. There is no one that I've seen in my entire nation as wise as you. Joseph, here's my signet ring. Put it on. Because after me, you will be the highest in the land. He goes from the pit to the pinnacle of power and prestige, just like that. And sure enough, it happens just as God had predicted through Pharaoh's dream and Joseph's interpretation. There's seven years of plenty, and then the famine hits. The famine doesn't just hit Egypt. It hits all of the surrounding lands. So much so that even up in the promised land, they're running out of food after a year. And Joseph's family is about to starve. They have to send people to come get grain. I want you to read with me chapter 41, beginning in verse 53. It says, When the seven years of plenty which had been in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands. But in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. In fact, the people of all the, the surrounding land came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all of the land. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at each other? Behold, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some from us, for us, from that place, so that we may live and not die. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Joseph did not send. Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, "I'm afraid that harm may befall him." So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming. For the famine was in the land of Canaan also. See that the family dynamics of Jacob's group has not changed at all, has it? He still really doesn't have much concern or regard or care for ten of his sons. He says, you, (laughs) what are you doing just sitting around staring at one another? Solve the problem. Deal with it. I'll send you, but I have a new favorite. It's Benjamin. Benjamin. I'm not that concerned about you two, you ten, but this one I will keep with me because he's my favorite and I cannot lose him. I might lose all of you, but I can't lose him. Verse six, now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold all the people of the land and Joseph's brothers came and they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them But he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. It's been over 20 years. Joseph has a new name, an Egyptian name. He's dressed like an Egyptian. His accent has changed. His appearance has changed. He knows who his brothers are, but they don't know him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had had about them. And he said to them, you're spies. 
You've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Then they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. We just came to get food. And so Joseph says, well, I'm going to test you. I'm going to test you. He said, no, you've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. They said, no, your servants are 12 brothers in all. The sons of one man in the land of Canaan, behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is dead. Joseph said to them, it is as I said, your spies. But by this you will be tested, by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he puts him in prison for three days. And after three days, he says, you know, I, I'll make you a different deal. You can all go, just leave one behind. I'll take Simeon. Why Simeon? We don't know. Probably given Simeon's character, we saw in the narrative of Simeon Levi, Joseph thought, this would be a good test. I know they don't really care much about Simeon. How long will they leave him here? So he lets all the brothers go, keeps Simeon behind, puts Simeon in prison. He gives them all the grain they need. He loads them up, sends them on their way, but he puts all the money back in the top of their sacks. One of them discovers the money in the top of his sack on the trip home. When they all get home, they all open their sacks and realize all of our money is back. They don't know what is going on, but they're in fear. They tell the story to their father, Jacob, and they say, you know, father, he said, But when we come back, we can't get any more grain and we can't get Simeon back unless we bring Benjamin with us. And their dad says, that's not going to happen. We'll just leave him there. Reuben steps up. Reuben, the first point, says, dad, dad, it's okay. When we have to go back, if we have to go back, trust me, if I don't bring Benjamin back and Simeon back and the grain back, you can kill my two sons. Joseph thinks to himself, (laughs) I don't trust you. You're the one who slept with my wife. This is not going to happen. But finally, conditions get so bad, they're completely out of food, that Jacob says to his sons, go back and get more grain. They tell him, Dad, we can't. There's no point. The man said, if we don't bring Benjamin back, we, we can't get any grain. I'm not sending Benjamin. And they say, well, we're not going then, Dad. And then Judah steps up. Judah becomes the leader of his family. He steps up and he says, Dad, send the boy with me. My life for his. I will bring him back. And if I don't, I will die trying. Jacob gives in because he knows his entire family is going to starve. And so he sends the boys back to Egypt. When they arrive, Joseph sees all of his brothers again, and he sees Benjamin. It's overwhelming. He tells his servants, prepare a feast. He sets all the places, and his servants put the men in order, birthright order. <laughs> They're stunned. How did, how did he know? And the men say to the servant, when we got home, all of our money was in the top of our sacks, but we're not thieves, we're not spies. Here's our money, and double for the next Supply of grain, and the servant says, Don't worry, 
The master has all of your money. He's fine. Sit down and enjoy the feast. They begin to eat and Benjamin gets a portion that's five times larger. They're feasting and they're enjoying this incredible thing, but in the back of their minds they're thinking something strange is happening here. Their sacks are loaded up. They get ready to leave, mount on their donkeys. They go out of the city. But what Joseph has done is he's had his servant take his own special cup, a distinct cup, and put it in Benjamin's sack. It's buried there in the grain. The men get out of the city a short ways. The servants chase them down and they stop them and they say, why have you repaid good with evil? Why have you repaid good with evil? You have stolen the master's cup. And they say, no, 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 we haven't stolen a thing. If we've stolen anything, then just put us all to death. And the servant says, well, actually, this is what we are going to do. My master says, come back. And the one who has the cup will stay as a slave forever. So they all come back and they unload their bags. They go to one after another. Finally, they come to the youngest, to Benjamin, and they pull out the cup. Joseph says, that's my slave. And they tear their robes. And they cry out. They say, no, no, this cannot be. And again, Judah steps forward and he says, no, no. I promised my father because I know if I don't bring back the boy, he will die. My life for his. Take my life for his. I will be his substitute. Men have changed. And then Joseph reveals himself to them. Look at chapter 45, verse 1. It says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not speak, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. He says, now go, go get my father. Bring my father here. Bring all of your family here. Bring your children here. Bring your livestock here. Bring everything here and I will save you. I will deliver you. So they go home and they load up Jacob and Jacob can't even believe it. He's he's 130 years old now gets on his donkey and he comes down to Egypt and falls on his son's neck and they embrace. For 17 years, he, Jacob lives with his family in Egypt, cared for, rescued, saved, delivered by Joseph. And this is how the narrative ends. At 147, Jacob died. Chapter 50. This is how the narrative concludes of Joseph's relationship with his brothers. Chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus you should say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin for the wrong they did. And now please forgive the transgression of your servant, of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. 
If you sit down and you read this narrative from beginning to end, what you find is Joseph is weeping over and over and over again. I, I counted six times where Joseph is weeping because of his relationship with his brothers. And really, uh, this is the, the, the fundamental message of this final narrative. Forgiveness is free, but it is exceptionally costly. Joseph is the one who is wronged. Joseph is the victim, but Joseph is the one who bears the cost of forgiveness. Joseph bore the cost. The one who forgives is the one who bears the cost. First principle of forgiveness. Forgiveness is costly for the giver. To forgive in both Greek and Hebrew, there are many words, but one of the primary concepts is to leave behind, okay, to abandon. David said, as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed my transgressions from me. You have removed them and abandoned them. You've walked away. And when God calls you to forgive, he's calling you to walk away from the debt and instead of requiring payment, to bless to show grace. And in this, Joseph really becomes a picture of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, He himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross. He's the one to whom the debt is owed, but he's the one who paid it. And that's the beauty of the gospel. God has forgiven freely all of our sins in Jesus Christ. God paid what was owed to God. The forgiver pays the price. And when God calls you to forgive, he's calling you to to walk away from the debt, instead to to bless, to give. How do you do that? There are a few things that we see develop in Joseph's life. First, Joseph trusted the wisdom of God. Joseph trusted the wisdom of God. Read with me chapter 45 again in verse 5. Genesis 45 Verse 5. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in, these, in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not ultimately you who sent me here, but God. And he is the one who has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all of the land of Egypt. Joseph said, God knew. I didn't know when I was in prison. I didn't know when I was betrayed time after time. And you didn't know. We didn't see, but God did. God saw. God was sending me ahead because God is wise. And God knows. And God always sees the end from the beginning. As it says in the book of Isaiah, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning. I always know. I know the plan that is best. And you don't. Do you trust my wisdom? This last week, Tristy and I got uh, called up to Oklahoma to uh, do a funeral for Tristy's aunt. That's why we were not here last week. Her aunt was a sweet woman, a wonderful woman. It was, it was sad. It was sad that we won't see her again. But there were also these little, these little glimpses uh, of, of joy and rejoicing when we were up there. One of those um, was when we were driving from uh, the funeral service to the church where we were, we were going to eat a meal with Tristy's family. As we were driving up, Tristy said, you know, I recognize that church. I've been in that church. That's the church where I went to the Baptist student ministry. 
Now, background on the story is this. When my wife was 19, she started walking with the Lord. She, she uh, had three friends who were part of the BSM, and they kept nagging her, come to this with us, come, come, come. And she's like, no, 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 I don't want to hang out with those people. I don't like those people. I, I'm not going to enjoy it. You know, just puts it off, puts it off. Finally, she broke down. She said, okay, I can put up with these people for 45 minutes, say I went, I'll never go again. So she went. First time, she walked in the door, and she said when she walked in the door, she felt like God was saying, this is where you're supposed to be. And that's when she started walking with Jesus. Okay. So we're driving up. She said, that's the church. That's where we had Baptist student ministry. We went in to have the meal. She goes, this is the room. This is where I started walking with Jesus. So the director, he's a guy named Steve Lewis. So I remember him so well. I said, honey, I think I just met Steve Lewis. She goes, no. You know, I, I would say things like that just to mess with her. But I go, look at my face. I'm not kidding. I swear. I promise. I think I just met Steve Lewis. I think Steve Lewis just became the pastor of this church. Hold on. So I went down the hallway. You know, I look on the door. Sure enough, Steve, it's Steve Lewis. I go, Steve, I got a story to tell you. I said, do you remember Tristy Welpley? He goes, oh, I remember Tristy Welpley. You know, my wife, you've met my wife. She's unforgettable, right? I said, I remember Tristy. I said, well, she's here. Come here. And so I drug him down the hallway and I got to, to reintroduce them, you know, and they saw one another. And he said, you know, I, at the funeral, I looked across, I, thought, I saw this woman, I thought, I think I know her. And then it just went out of my mind. And, you know, I, I think I was almost more moved than they were. And I just thanked him. I said, thank you, because my family doesn't exist apart from your, your service and your sacrifice. And, you know, I know there were many days where he was like, oh, you know, one more day. And rarely probably did he get to see the fruit of this. And, you know, that's our lives. We make these little investments in people's lives. People who are struggling or in our own kids' lives. Or we, or we suffer physically. And we don't see, as we suffer physically and we still trust God, how it affects people. Or maybe we're wronged and we forgive. And we don't get to see immediately the fruit of that forgiveness. It just takes time. But God knows. And God sees the end from the beginning. He says, do you trust me that I'm wise? I know all things. Second forgiveness principle is this. Forgiveness and the fruit of forgiveness is a long process. Joseph could have crushed his brothers in this moment. He could have sent them back with sand, right? Or he could have said, no, you're going to prison. He could have tortured them. He could have killed them. He could have done anything. And how many times in his mind was he tempted to rehearse that? You know, I had a dream. And one day, I believe still, they'll bow down before me. When they do, boy, I will get back. How many times was he tempted to think that? Over and over and over again, he had to say no to that. No, if I ever see them again, if the dream is ever fulfilled, I will bless. We know that Joseph went through that process and that he chose to bless. But this was a long, long time coming. And you'll be tempted times to pick up that wound again and to, to think about the moment when you can crush rather than bless. And God will say, no, lay it down. Because I know the end from the beginning. You trust me? I'm working something here. Trust me? I'm wise. Joseph trusted the wisdom of God. Joseph trusted the justice of God. Look at verse 5 again. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph doesn't pretend that they did no wrong, right? You sold me here. <laughs> That's just a fact. But Joseph trusts not only in the wisdom of God, but also in the justice of God, that, that God will get the right payment back at the right time. 
Turn to chapter 50. Again, Genesis 50 and verse 15. Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. They said, what if Joseph bears a grudge? Joseph, before dad died, he said, forgive them. So here we are, reminding you that dad said, forgive. And Joseph weeps that they don't feel forgiven. That they don't recognize that he has released them from the debt. Verse 18, then his brothers also came and they fell down before him. They said, behold, we're your servants. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for am I in God's place? As for you, of course, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. So he says, am I in God's place? No, I'm not. I know you meant evil. You sold me. But I am not in God's place. God is my avenger. As Jesus said, leave room for the wrath of God. He knows how to exact justice perfectly. Trust him. Wait for him. Third principle of forgiveness. Forgiveness is never deserved. His brothers come to him and they say, release us from the debt. Right? Walk away from the debt, please. But there's nothing that they can do to make up for the debt. Right? The, the years are lost. It's gone. The pain is there. You can't remove it. Some debts can never be removed. Our debt to Jesus Christ can never be removed. We, Joseph didn't forgive his brothers because they deserved to be forgiven. That's not why he forgave. He forgave because he trusted God's wisdom, seeing the end from the beginning. He trusted in God's justice to exact the right form of payment at the right moment in time. He trusted in God. His brothers didn't deserve it. And sometimes people will come to you and they may ask forgiveness and they don't deserve to be forgiven and there's nothing that they can do to make up or maybe they don't come and ask forgiveness at all. But we still release them from the debt because we're all debtors. Ephesians chapter four, verse 32, it says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Why? Because God in Christ has forgiven you. In the same way that God in Christ has forgiven you, how has he forgiven you? Because you paid part of it back or most of it back or all of it back? No. Some debts cannot be repaid. And our debt of sin against God cannot be repaid. And so God says, I freely forgive you in Jesus Christ because I have borne the cost of your debt to me. We forgive because we have been forgiven. We don't forgive because others deserve to be forgiven. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Fourth principle of forgiveness. Unwillingness to forgive is even costlier than forgiveness. We release the debt because God has forgiven us so much, but we also release the debt because if we don't, we pay an incredibly high price. Probably the most powerful quote I've I've ever read about this is from uh, Frederick Buchner in his little book called Wishful Thinking. I've given it to you before, but I want, to, I want to read it again. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given 
and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Or to state it positively, a man named Lewis Smead said this, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. Last night, uh, Tristy showed me an article that she came across in the New York Times. I, I cannot encourage you strongly enough to go back and find this and read it. It's about uh, the Hutu and Tutsi tribes. It's, it's pictures of victims and their perpetrators standing together reconciled. And then a brief story of their reconciliation. It's in the New York Times. And time after time after time, they cite the power of forgiveness from God. It's, it's a really powerful. But one victim, a survivor, said this. And remember, these are perpetrators who had, who had killed these people's families or burned down their houses, destroyed everything they owned. I mean, enormous debt that can never be repaid. One survivor said this. He said, sometimes justice does not give someone a satisfactory answer. Cases are subject to corruption in our country. But when it comes to forgiveness willingly granted, one is satisfied once and for all. When someone is full of anger, he can lose his mind. But when I granted forgiveness, I felt my mind at rest. Isn't that beautiful? When I forgave and I gave it freely and willingly, I felt my mind at rest at rest. Joseph trusted the wisdom of God. He trusted the justice of God. He trusted ultimately the sovereignty of God. When we think of sovereignty, we often think control. But what sovereignty is about, remember biblically, is that God has all the authority over his realm and he has all the power to accomplish his will. And what God loves to do is good. And so even when evil occurs, which God did not cause, God can take even that evil and he can move it and bend it to create some beauty from the ashes. That's how God uses his sovereignty. Read with me again chapter 50, verse 20. He says to his brothers, Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me. That was your motive. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people. God wanted to save you. He wanted to save our family. He wanted to preserve us. He wanted to save us physically. He wanted to save us spiritually. And God knew. God sees all. God is all wise and he has all power and he is all good. And so he uses that for our good to rescue and save us. I trust him. And so I forgive you because I trust him. I forgive you. I release, I release you. It says in Romans 8, verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And I think sometimes we, you know, we say that verse so often, we repeat it so often that we kind of trivialize it and we think, well, I'm just going to see that good immediately. And I'm going to see that good in my personal circumstances right now, quickly. You know, I, I went in the hospital, but the next day I got out and I got to share the gospel and boom, I just see it right like that, right? I went in the hospital, I was sick, but I met a nurse and we got married and we have a family now. You know, it's just, boom, here we go. You know, and we, no, it means God is working for good. God is always for working for good. And even the, the evil that is perpetrated against you in your life, God can somehow move that and craft it because of his power and goodness and sovereignty to create good, which maybe you'll see and maybe you won't. But do you trust him? Trust him. Joseph trusted God, and so, as a result, Joseph was willing to work for reconciliation. 
Remember, forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing, right? Forgiveness we grant freely. Reconciliation is based on trust, and trust is earned. And Joseph's brothers had not been trustworthy. They needed to be released from the debt, but they also needed to become trustworthy men. Right? Sometimes we can reconcile with other people. Sometimes we can't. Paul says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. But sometimes you can't be at peace with that person. Maybe you need to seek forgiveness and they won't grant forgiveness. Or maybe you want to grant forgiveness, but they haven't even acknowledged the wrong. Or maybe there's a person in your life that's still dangerous to you. And it's unwise for you to reconcile. But insofar as you can pursue the reconciliation, take the risk when wisdom tells you to take the risk. And God says, my, my grace is, is very risky. Go ex- extend it. Take a risk again. Well, that's what Joseph does. But the way that he does it is he tests his brothers, right? He tests them. And essentially what Joseph does is he puts his brothers through the same circumstances that he went through. Joseph had highs and lows. He was in the pit, he was sold as a slave, but then he rose to power, but then he was back in prison, but then he was taken out of prison. He's in Pharaoh's house. So he puts his brothers through the same process. They have no food, they're starving, but then they go down to get food. There's plenty of food, but he says, no, you're going to stay as slaves. No, instead I'm going to give you the grain, but now you've got to come back. Come back and they get more grain, but now your brother's going to have to stay behind. But he tests them through highs and lows. He's, he's breaking them. He's testing them. Luke chapter 42, verse 21. They said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore this distress has come upon us. In other words, they, they see in their present circumstances the hand of God. They're, they're, they make the connection because... Uh, through these circumstances, and since Joseph is now the vehicle of God, Joseph is acting like God, and he's bringing him through all these highs and lows, and they reach a conviction of sin, and finally he puts them back in the, almost the same position they were in before when they threw him into the pit. He says to them, I'll, I'll just take Benjamin. Benjamin alone will be my slave. That, the, the, the new favorite son that you really don't like because you're not loved by your father, but he is. All you've got to do is leave Benjamin behind and you can have all the grain you want and you can go free. It's the same situation that they were in with Joseph. He tests them and he sees, no, the, these men have changed. Judah steps up and he says, no, my life for the boys. And it is at that moment and not until that moment that Joseph reveals himself and they begin to reconcile. He's already granted forgiveness. He's released the debt, but now he sees they have changed and they begin to to reconcile because Joseph ultimately wants his brothers close. He wants his family close. He wants reconciliation. It's such a powerful story. Forgiveness, it really is. It's so very costly. If we're called upon to forgive, we bear the cost Reconciliation is it's risky, it's dangerous. Why do it? Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. See what he's saying? God wants you to be like God. And what is God like? Well, Even the ungrateful and the evil, God blesses. 
God forgives. God loves. Why? Because God is love, and he wants you to be sons and daughters. That is, bear the family resemblance. Be like God. This is what God does. And so, God says, I, I want you to pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless them. Don't curse them. Leave room for my wrath. Trust my justice. In fact, you're going to be wronged. Why? Because you must be wrong. You must be wrong so that they can see my forgiveness. Do you catch that? For most people, they can't understand God's forgiveness. They can't see God until they see forgiveness in us. And so we must be wronged so that we have opportunity to forgive. Do you see that? That is, that is God's will and plan for your life. So that you can be a son and a daughter, portray the, the very nature and character of God. You have to be wrong so that you can forgive because God is a forgiving God. That's who God is. Whew. Came across a really interesting story this week about a woman named uh, Marganita Lasky. She was an English journalist and uh, an author, a novelist. It was back in 1988, shortly before her death, she was caught uh, in an interview on camera in a very unusual, candid moment. And she was a, a secular humanist, atheist, rejected God. But she said this. She said, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. So men and women, God will allow you to be wronged in this life so that you can be like God and release the debt. Two thoughts as we close. First is this. When wronged, look in, not out. This is what I mean. When somebody wrongs you, you, you become focused on that person, right, and the, and the wrong. It's tempting to become focused on uh, retribution. We look out. We look at that person. We're then looking in and realizing, actually, you know, God is making me like himself, God-like, because God is a forgiver. Something in me that God is, is working on and, and transforming to make me like himself. I need to look in. God, what is in me that is holding back forgiveness? Change me. Look in. Look in. And then second, when wronged, remember God's dream for your life. God had a dream for Joseph's life, that he'd be the rescuer, he'd be the deliverer. He had a dream for Joseph's life. Joseph's brothers didn't like that dream, and so they said, we can get rid of that dream. We'll kill him. (laughs) We'll sell him as a slave. That's how we can end that dream. Get him out of our lives. Then we'll never bow down to him. And by trying to kill the dream, they actually fulfilled the dream. People will step into your life. They will will try to kill God's dream for your life. You'll be attacked. You'll be wronged. But in the very act of attacking you, they are fulfilling God's dream for your life, that you be a rescuer, that you be a deliverer, that you be like God. That's the story of Joseph's life. People need to see deliverance, rescue, release forgiveness in us before they will understand it in God. Will you let God make you into that kind of person? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have released our debt in Jesus. We pray, Father, that we would be people who would, like Jesus, release others. Father, I pray that that we wouldn't uh, take this story and, and, and just set it aside. 
But if there are people that we need to forgive or if there are people whose forgiveness that we need to seek, that we would do so this week and we would begin to see the, the power of Jesus in reconciling and releasing. Father, I pray that you would give us courage to obey. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.